Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today, we will be reading chapters five through eight of Jane Eyre. Jane's introduction and then orientation to her new home, the Lowood School. This section starts with Jane realizing that at Lowood, she will be cold and hungry and ends with the sentence, I would not now have exchanged Lowood with all its privations for Gateshead and its daily luxuries. It's not because the privations aren't brutal. The girl's underwear is counted and they sometimes are so hungry they faint. It's simply that at Lowood, people see Jane for who she is and how she actually behaves. There is a hint of kindness at Lowood. At Lowood, Jane meets two people who change everything, Helen Burns and Miss Temple. Lowood is also where different forms of religion are on display. Charlotte Bronte was raised by a minister, and she loved her father. She married his mentee. But there were things about his church that she abhorred. He sent her to a school much like Lowood, the clergy daughter's school at Cowan Bridge. And that school literally killed two of her sisters. The idea of these schools was that you humiliate the body to save the soul. Charlotte wanted bodies to be taken care of on earth. Humiliating the body meant your sisters died. And she had controversial ideas about salvation that are given voice by Helen Burns in this chapter. After negative responses to Jane Eyre, she wrote to a friend in 1850, I'm sorry the clergy do not like the doctrine of universal salvation. I think it's a great pity for their sake. But surely they are not so unreasonable as to expect me to deny or suppress what I believe the truth. Now for a rundown of the four whole chapters we'll be talking about today. Chapter 5 encapsulates Jane's first day at her new home. She has to orchestrate her own orientation. She realizes that here she will often be hungry and cold. Larger girls will get to eat more and stand closer to the fire. She gleans the information she will need to survive in this new place in two ways. One, by experience, and two, by asking questions of Helen Burns. In chapter six, we learn about Helen Burns, who she is and what she believes. Helen is a little older than Jane, and is someone who Jane takes to and admires quickly in their acquaintance. Jane watches as Helen is sometimes brilliant in class, and at other times is beaten for nothing more than having dirty fingernails, which she has because the water that the girls were given to wash with in the morning was frozen. Helen and Jane have a theological conversation in this chapter. Jane is outraged at having watched Helen get beaten. Helen says that she deserves the beating. Jane says that she needs love to survive. And Helen says, you think too much of the love of human beings. Helen is a young, sickly angel who preaches cheek turning and whom Jane admires but disagrees with. Here is Elsie Mitchie on Helen Burns. There's a reading, I think it's in um, Mad Woman in the Attic, where where Helen, like, 
you know, like softens the rough edges of Jane, like where Helen teaches Jane that if she's not so directly confrontational, she'll actually be more effective. So there's that reading. You know, Bronte said somewhere that Helen was modeled on her sister, right? The sisters that died at Lowood. But Helen is like a classic character from both slave novels and factory novels. So in those narratives, you always have someone who is saintly, who accepts their position, and who is set against the ones that are more rebellious. So I think Helen is a trope that Victorians would have expected with this rebellious child, right? That you would get the other side. In chapter seven, we learn of the brutality of the Sabbaths at Lowood. The girls and the teachers walk for two miles in the snow, each way to church, half starved and underdressed. But the real drama in this chapter is when Mr. Brocklehurst finally comes to the school for a visit. He complains that he has heard that an extra piece of bread with butter has been given to the girls on two occasions. And he is outraged that one of the girls' hair is curly. He demands that all top knots are cut off. The girls need to be mortified now to prepare them for the rest of their lives and to make sure that they get into heaven. Then he spots Jane and he tells the whole school that she is a liar and that they shouldn't talk to her. Helen talks to her anyway, but Jane is still devastated. Chapter eight is when Jane is given the opportunity to set her reputation right. Helen pulls Jane aside Jane is heartbroken. Everyone will hate me now, she thinks. But Helen starts to talk Jane down. Here is Miriam Burstein with a little bit more on Helen Burns. She's also going to talk about Sinjin in this clip, and you'll only meet him later in the novel. If you think about Jane looking for spiritual advice in the book, she generally doesn't get any good advice from the men, right? And certainly not from the clergymen. Mr. Brocklehurst and St. John Rivers are not helpful spiritual advisors. Helen Burns has arrived at her conclusions from an independent reading of the Bible, right? This is a strong evangelical position, right? That this is what's happened. She sat down, she studied her Bible closely, and this is what she has arrived at. So in that sense, she is representing possibilities for women. Women have just as much access to the Bible. Women can interpret the Bible. Women, right, Helen Burns is in the end much more helpful to Jane, right, in terms of her spiritual development than the men are, right? So it's not so much in that authority, right, male clerical authority in this book is all that helpful, but this kind of egalitarian exchange between two women is quite formative. While Helen and Jane are talking, Miss Temple, the school headmistress, approaches the two girls. I came on purpose to find you, Jane Eyre. Miss Temple and Helen give Jane the same instructions. Tell us everything, but do it calmly. Mr. Brocklehurst has called you a liar. What is your version of the story? As simply and unemotionally as possible. Jane, as calmly as she can, tells her tale. Miss Temple knows Mr. Lloyd, the apothecary, in Jane's story, and so says that she will write to him to corroborate Jane's version of the events. Mr. Lloyd does corroborate that version, and Jane is cleared of all charges. Miss Temple gathers the whole school to tell them, and quote, the teachers shook Jane's hands and kissed her, and a murmur of pleasure ran through the ranks of her companions. Now that Jane has been given a second chance properly, she begins to study in earnest and succeeds. Her past has been entirely shaken off. Gateshead cannot touch her here, and so, indeed, Hungry, cold, and mortified as her flesh is, Jane would not now have exchanged Lowood with all its privations for Gateshead and its daily luxuries. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. 
Okay, Lauren. So what is some context? What are some things that you feel like people should know before we jump into the text? Well, you and our exquisite experts laid out so much of it already, but there are just a couple things that I would add. First of all, I think it's really worth noting that schools were for boys. So, you know, schools like Eton, Winchester, the famous British schools, those were for incredibly wealthy boys. And this is a period of time in which there's the emergence of grammar schools, you know, for slightly lower class kids. But those are also schools for boys. So if you're a girl and you're wealthy, you are educated by a governess at home. And if you're a girl who has been orphaned in some way, and perhaps you have been orphaned because your parent was a member of the clergy, then a school like Lowood would take you in. And so when it comes to getting an education as a girl of a certain class, this is what you got. You have to be born into a church family and you have to be orphaned, essentially. I also think it's worth noting, and this is something that came up already in this episode, is the emergence of the social problem novel. So Jane Eyre is a book, of course, that we think about as a very internal novel, a book about romance, a book about the self, about womanhood in that way. But when we get to Lowood, this is when Bronte is telling us this is also a book about something bigger. This is a book in an emerging genre right now, which is about the larger social problems in England. You know, Oliver Twist has already come out as a way to think about orphans and criminality. When Bronte is writing Jane Eyre, it's at the same time that Elizabeth Gaskell, who she will become very dear friends with, is writing Mary Barton, which is written about the industrial North and trade unions, sex work, single fatherhood. This is a time when literature is really developing massive social critique. And this is the movement of the book in which Bronte is saying, this is not just the book of a girl's experience of the self of romance of the heart. This is big. This is about massive social problems. This is about a public health crisis, an education crisis, a crisis of the church itself. Yeah. And you just get the sense that Bronte felt this so clearly in her bones, right? She only spent a year at this similar school, but it changed her whole life. She went from the third oldest sister to the oldest sister. Her family was decimated by a school like this. And so I think it's so interesting that her critique of it stays so strong. And yet it is also the only place that she can imagine Jane having the opportunity to change her life. Even though Charlotte's life is just completely destroyed by this exact place, she changes what that building and what that experience is. She redeems this evil place a little bit. Or she complicates it. Right. And in doing so, I think she's saying this is how necessary an education is and this is how rare it is to get one and how much people have to be suffered, mortified, demeaned if they are born girls who are not wealthy to even have this pathetic equivalent of an education. And we're going to see how worth it to Helen it is to suffer what she suffers just to be there for this education. And of course, we're also going to get Miss Temple, who outside of the Lowood curriculum is going to teach Jane about the elegant power of subversion and what it means to question authority with behavior. Yeah, intentional behavior rather than outbursts. I mean, and I think that this is the moment to look closely at is my favorite moment in these few chapters is, you know, Mr. Brocklehurst gives this false report of Jane. He says, her aunt told me that she's a liar. Nobody talk to her, right? He gives the instruction that nobody at the school should talk to Jane and has Jane stand on a stool and like humiliates her. And this is just like a complete re-traumatizing experience of the way that Jane was treated at Gateshead, right? And she has no reason to believe that now her life is going to be any different at Lowood. And 
Miss Temple specifically is instructed by Mr. Brocklehurst to A, not give the kids any extra food and B, to ignore Jane. And instead what she does, and this is the line that starts the conversation, is she walks right up to Jane and she says, I came on purpose to find you, Jane Eyre. I want you in my room. And as Helen Burns is with you, she may come too. And just that like, I am going to subvert Mr. Brocklehurst immediately. As soon as the man leaves the room, we are not going to listen to him. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm going to come on purpose to find you and I'm going to invite you in and your friend can come too. So you can learn that you can have a community. And then once she goes upstairs with Jane, she doesn't just give Jane the chance to talk to her, but she feeds her. She again subverts the other order that Mr. Brocklehurst gave and I, I just love it. I love how subversive Miss Temple is. And I love that her name is Miss Temple when Mr. Brocklehurst is always called the edifice of the church, right? Like again and again, Jane describes him as a literal building. And then it's like, but he says he's a building or he looks like a building, but it's actually this subversive woman who wants me to be fed, who is the temple, And two of my favorite words of that portion that you just read are on purpose, right? There's nothing to be questioned here. It's not, oh, Jane, there you are. Why don't you come back to my chambers with me and I'll give you some toast? It's, I sought you out. I see you. You are worth my time, my intentions. Here I am. Come with me. It's such a different way of engaging a kid, especially of letting a person know their value. And it's something that we have never seen Jane experience before. And right, like she does this great scaffolding of like you, Jane, you are the person I came to. But like Helen, you come to and Helen, you come to because you're here because Jane likes you, obviously. And then we know, we find out later that Miss Temple actually has like a really acute fondness for Helen. And yet she still made sure to treat Jane as if she was the special one. And we get the feeling that she has also sought out Helen on purpose, that this is part of a pattern of behavior of giving a personal care that the institution won't give. I mean, this is really when we learn that Helen is dying of tuberculosis and that Miss Temple is checking in on her health in very specific ways because she knows that she's the only person who cares about it. And so she can't be the health system. She can't be the thing that reorganizes the way this whole structure is approached. All she can do is make these girls seen, make them feel cared for, maybe give them a little bit of seed cake. And it's nothing in comparison to the vast systemic crisis that's happening here. But it's still more than nothing. And it means so much for that. Yeah. The other thing that's just occurring to me is that Miss Temple is like doing this other idea that we think of as a Christian idea, this lovely idea of a Christian idea, which is pay attention to the people who have been the most abused, right? Like Helen is sick. And so she gets special attention from Miss Temple. Jane has just been publicly humiliated. So she gets attention from Miss Temple. Mr. Brocklehurst has this other idea of like, we have to abuse them in order to save them. And Miss Temple is like, the abused ones are the ones that I'm going to try to save. So this is an element in terms of thinking about the power in this chapter that I have to admit when I was younger and I read this book in my teens and in my 20s, these elements of the book held, held no interest to me. I've had this experience before where I first read Anna Karenina, you know, for the love story. And then later I read it for the revolution. Right. You're like, oh, wheat. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's oh, it's about labor. I get it. Um, This is a book that I mean, I probably skimmed these pages the first couple of times I read this book because it was like, come on, baby, get me to Rochester. Totally. But now that I'm, you know, this wizened old person (laughs) who's been mired in questions of systemic inequality and how we change hearts and minds around it. 
This has become one of the most important and fascinating parts of the book for me, because this is when Bronte is understanding and revealing elements of inequality and how the poor are punished that are so totally in line with what I've seen in my own reporting. So when I was just rereading these chapters, I was thinking about the shelter where I was reporting This Is All I Got, and the woman who runs the shelter, who is a complicated woman is someone who believes that the young homeless mothers, these real women with real babies and real feelings, real histories, real lives, real struggles, need to be made incredibly uncomfortable and on edge or they won't get anywhere. I mean, this is actually her doctrine. This is her philosophy of how to run this shelter in Brooklyn, that If they're not uncomfortable, they will be indigent. They will not be able to function in society. And therefore, the rules are always changing and it feels like there's more privation than is necessary, etc. This is the way our entire system for caring for the poor has functioned. And it's not, you know, just a Victorian concept. It's not even just a, a conservative Republican concept. I mean, this was Bill Clinton's way of addressing the yeah. welfare system. And it's something that I think is not just born out in vast systemic terms, but also it's really internalized, right? This is how many people believe people who are in need need to be treated, yeah, which is horribly or they will not survive. And that is exactly what Brocklehurst is telling us here, that they should starve because it will teach them to starve. They should have to force down burnt porridge because that might be all they ever get in life. That the notion that their frock should be comfortable and their toes should be warm is somehow anathema to what he believes these girls will need in order to survive in this world. And don't you think that what's under that is a belief that it's people's fault that they are poor and at the margins? Jane and Charlotte Bronte are are subverting that, right? They're saying, no, look, Miss Temple will show you that if you feed a child and teach her how to draw, she is going to be upwardly mobile, (laughs) She is going to be able to thrive in this world and support herself and go out into the world and be a productive member of society. And if you don't, they're going to die. And that way of thinking, that abusive way of thinking does trace back to the church, right? This is Calvinism. And it's really fascinating to see how Bronte is wrestling with the hypocrisy of Brocklehurst Christianity and then bringing in Helen Burns's far more, I mean, I don't want to say it's it's Buddhist, but there is this element of inwardness, self-sacrifice, acceptance. But I also totally struggle with that. And so this is part of where the book starts falling apart for me. When Jane is at Gateshead and she's just all rage, I'm just like, I'm so on Team Charlotte here. I'm so feeling this in a way that I relate to. And then we meet Helen and I am so confused by what Bronte is doing with Helen because Helen's way of just taking it is something that I abhor, not as much as Brocklehurst's way of using his power, but in a way that I almost feel more revulsed by. Because it's the other thing that we ask poor people to do is just accept their lot, you know, own the pain, own the poverty, own the fact that you're a child who's been sent to get an education and you're going to die for it because now you have tuberculosis. And the worst thing about this place is not even the horrors that we've already seen. It's actually going to kill you and you're just supposed to lie down and take it. And I despise this about this book. And it does make me think, what was she doing here? So I was really worried when I first started treating Jane Eyre as sacred about what I would do with Bertha. And I feel like I came to a place with Bertha that I'm comfortable with. And I I didn't even worry about Helen because I just never thought I would come to a good place with her. She frustrates me so much, right? She doesn't just get beaten. She gets sent to get the weapon by which she will be beaten 
And it's the system that she's getting beaten for, right? This place is not properly heated. And so the water that they are supposed to wash their nails and faces with in the morning is frozen. And so Helen's nails are dirty and she gets beaten for having dirty nails. And then she says to Jane, no, 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 it's okay that I was beaten. It was actually right that I was beaten. And I guess I just don't think that Jane actually follows in Helen's footsteps. I think she softens Jane's edges, but I don't think that Jane starts to emulate Helen later in the book. And we will never see Jane accept the fates that other people are trying to hand her, which Helen does, right? Helen says, yes, I will go get the sticks so you can beat me. And that is not something that we will ever see Jane Eyre do. And so it's interesting to me that Helen is written as the saint. And I do think she impacts Jane. Jane is going to become quieter and more subdued. And she'll forgive people for things that are quite unforgivable. But she never takes it to the extreme that Helen Burns does. Although, and this is something that we can talk about farther into the book, but I do think it's worth noting that what Jane most significantly does is repress and subvert her own desires because of how she fears they will appear under God. And that is a response to me that feels inspired by Helen. The secular response, the Miss Temple response would be to consider something in a really rational way and find evidence for it and then eat the damn seed cake. <laughs> Whereas this notion of self-abnegation under a Christian God is something that is the thing that removes me the most from Jane and from this book. And the reason that it has never been one of my favorite books. I mean, I think that this is the question is throughout the rest of the book, is Jane going to be more heavily influenced by Miss Temple or Helen Burns? And these are these two different good women that I think that Jane Eyre, the narrator, is not telling us that one is better than the other. She loves them both. Vanessa, do you love them both? I, um, I've never liked Helen. <laughs> I can't stand Helen. It feels like I'm saying that I hate Beth in Little Women, but I don't think that's what it is. I think that there is something that is almost pompously self-erasing and totally lacking in in charisma. And, you know, I love that she loves to read. I love that she's there because she cares about her education. I love that she talks to Jane. But other than that, it's like, come on. I mean, she's nothing like Beth March, right? Like Beth March cares a lot about making nice slippers and she hates that she's dying, right? Whereas Helen is just so passive in some ways. And yet she's active in others. Mr. Brocklehurst says, don't talk to Jane. And she walks right up to Jane. It's Helen's willingness to be abused. And I guess I've just always disliked it and yet cannot get myself to judge someone who has come up with a coping mechanism to justify their abuse. Miss Scatchard hates her. Similarly to how Mrs. Reed hated Jane, there's just something about Helen that Miss Scatchard hates. And so she's just going to keep beating Helen. And rather than resisting the way that Jane did, Helen is taking it and meaning making it. And I have a taste for the way that Jane handles it better, but I can't get myself to judge, you know, a young abused child for integrating a logic that makes sense to her. Yes, but I don't feel Bronte writing into that. I don't feel Bronte cueing us that we need to pay attention to how abuse gets internalized. I actually feel it being, you know, reified in a certain way. But I think it's worth thinking about the abuser, too, in this situation, which I also don't see Bronte pointing towards. But during this reading of the book, it's been really echoing in my mind, which is thinking about Miss Scatchard, the abusive teacher, the one who's just out for Helen all the time. She seems nothing but evil. 
But I think that if we think about this in a slightly different way, if we imagine what it means to be a teacher in this school who Bronte has told us these teachers are miserable, they are underpaid, exhausted, abused by the very same institution that is abusing the children. They get so tired and hungry, they can't teach the kids. Because they are poor women, like the children. They are the grown-up versions of the students at Lowood. And so, of course, Brocklehurst treats them the exact same way. I mean, Miss Temple is different because she is the one wealthy-born member of the faculty. She has her gold watch and her lovely clothing, and she can have that seed cake tucked away in a drawer. She can pay for the bread that the girls eat when the porridge is burnt. But Miss Scatcherd can't. Miss Scatcherd is unlovely and unmarriageable. Miss Scatcherd is stuck at Lowood for the rest of her natural life. So within these hierarchies, within poverty, within privation, the only power that she has is over these students. And the only avenue to express her own misery is by taking it out on someone else. And it recalls to me so much my reporting done in the welfare system and how the women who are in line for public assistance are being served by the women who are on the other side of the desk who are frankly just one tiny notch above them in terms of economic oppression, in terms of racial oppression usually. And there's no love lost between women on the other side of that desk. It's not a comfortable relationship. There's no solidarity there. And so I actually think that that the abuse is something when it comes not from Brocklehurst, but from Scatcherd, that is really worth taking some time with. No, I think Miss Scatcherd is absolutely like this poor woman, right? Everyone in this in this school is just trying to survive. And, and I agree. Like, I just have this distaste for the way that Helen takes the abuse, as does Jane, right? Jane is like, I would not let myself get treated like that, right? So Jane actually opens up the possibility for this type of resistance that you're talking about that Helen could do. I guess with Helen and, you know, like this will be the first time that I really am held to account on this in my reading of Jane Eyre. But like Helen as a character, I feel like we will know her by her fruits. The The highest praise that Jane as a character can give another character is by trying to emulate them. Like that, I think, is the way that it gets signaled whether or not this theology is worthwhile if Jane takes it on herself. And what I can't quite suss out is whether or not Jane does take on some of Helen's theology or whether she loves Helen for who she is, but is like, it's not for me. It's actually Miss Temple's way that I want to walk. It's also a question about how the reader takes it on. And so yeah. as you were discussing at the top of the episode, there is this trope within these novels, within the social problem novels, within slave narratives. I mean, little Eva in Uncle Tom's Cabin is, of course, right. the classic example of the martyred white girl who just takes it all on and dies for it. And that's how we're supposed to know that her love for Tom is something that is deeply Christian and therefore appropriate for all the good Christian women who are going to read Uncle Tom's Cabin. It feels in a way that that is what Helen is doing here, too, is Bronte is telling us this is still a Christian tale. There is still a story of Christian emulation. The martyr loves Jane, therefore Jane is worthy of love. And I can't stand that trope. I can't stand that convention in these dramas. I find it deeply anti-feminist. I find it hugely suspect. And so even in this sense, imagining readers then reading Helen and needing to have a Helen figure to make us tolerate Jane's resistance is, you know, something that just remains rankling to me. Yeah, no, me too. And it's so interesting. I, I've met a lot of Jane Eyre fans and it it is certainly not signaled that you are supposed to read Helen critically. The way that brilliant readers read Helen is as this saint-like figure who we are supposed to try to emulate. And it it is dangerous to me 
this idea that we are supposed to aid our abusers in their abuse of us. I think it's also interesting to bring in the question of desire here as it relates to Helen. What Helen has a desire for is education. What Helen has a desire for is to sit and read in peace. And I can respect that. Yeah. And identify with it. But it is as though she is entirely devoid of any other type of desire. Desire for respect, desire for love, desire for physical comfort. And it feels like what we are meant to do here is, I mean, it's a different form of mortifying the body, right, is to deny all desire. And the notion that she could be put on a pedestal in a book that is really wrestling with those ideas of desire, I just feel really troubled by it. The thing that she desires is the ability to use her imagination, which is part of that education, right? Like when a teacher is not entertaining enough, her mind wanders and she she doesn't like that about herself, which is problematic, but she does just want time to think, which I think is something that the Bronte girls really wanted, right? Emily didn't want to teach because it was annoying to have to did not use her imagination. Charlotte, when she did teach, couldn't wait to get to be able to use her imagination at the end of the day, right? I I think that is something in Helen that I love, that she wants a chance to be left alone with her thoughts. But yeah, I, I want her to want more food. And I, I, you know, I want her to want things of the flesh. And that is one of the things I love about Jane, right? Like Jane, Jane wants to be warm and and fed and loved and hugged. And I mean, Helen literally says, like, you think too much of your mortal flesh. And I don't think Jane does think too much of that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The last place of desire that I want to talk about is like, what is it that's doing it for Mr. Brocklehurst? So there is just like the... The sort of like white supremacist Republican status quo reading of Mr. Brocklehurst, that what he wants is to maintain his power. And in order to maintain his power in the world, he has to continue to subjugate others. And he wants his ego to be filled, right? And so he is just this like pillar of the status quo because the status quo serves him really well. He is on the top of that pyramid. I'm wondering if you think that there isn't also something sexually like scary about him. The other way that I read him in this scene in particular is that he's attracted to these girls and hates himself for it. That he's like, why is their hair curled? Cut off their hair. Why have they used more than one dress? He's looking in like a fetishistic way at their stockings. Like the attention that he is paying to their bodies just seems lascivious to me. And I don't know if I just hate this man and and so I'm making him even creepier than he is, if this is just like part of him trying to keep them poor and mortified in order to maintain his status quo. Did you get that vibe of him at all? That he is like attracted to these girls and there's like some weird kinky self-loathing? I'm disappointed in myself because I didn't find the kink in it. 
However, within that, I mean, we do have a whole tradition of religion telling women to put it away, right? And this goes across the world, or at least across the Abrahamic religions, that you got to cover your hair, or you've got to make sure that your ankles are not showing. It's every school's dress code, like this notion that if girls are going to in any way flaunt themselves or be attractive to a male gaze, then all of a sudden everything's going to run out of control. And I think that this is another way that we police class in terms of girlhood is who gets to dress certain ways, who gets mm-hmm. to attract suitors in different ways, who gets to to express themselves in a way that instills some sense of confidence or sense of beauty. And I think that he is definitely saying a poor woman should be a desexualized woman. A poor woman should be there to serve, to sew, to pray and nothing else. Whereas my daughters can be wearing all the furs and curls that they possibly want because I'm going to need them to marry the most landed, respected men possible who are only going to want them for how they look and for their charm and for their manners. And That delineation between what one sort of girl gets to be and the other one is, to me, where I see that power. But yeah, maybe he's also hot for the stockings. It's just this curly-haired girl, right, who, of course, I'm focused on. But he's like, why is her hair curled? And Miss Temple is like, she didn't curl it. It is not curled. It is curly. Her hair naturally curls. And it doesn't feel like he has ever required all of the girls to turn around so he can decide that all of their hair needs to get cut off before. It's this one girl having curly hair makes him realize that all of their hair needs to be cut off. And it's this great moment. I mean, I think it's my other favorite quote in the chapters today, which is that so he has all of the girls face the wall so that he can inspect their hair And Jane says, it was a pity Mr. Brocklehurst could not see the girls' faces, too, because whatever he might do with the outside of the cup and the platter, he can cut off their hair. He can make them dress as humbly as he likes. The inside was further beyond his interference than he imagined. And I just love that. I love that Jane in this moment is realizing that she's not special for her desire to rebel. All of these girls want to rebel. And he is going to try to humiliate them for whatever reason, whether or not it is like shame around his own attraction or not. And they will age out of this and they will have curly hair, right? Like there's only so long that he is going to be able to use his desire and power in order to subvert them. And these girls, they can't be crushed. Their spirits cannot be crushed. Okay, Lauren, next week, chapters nine and 10, what what are you looking forward to? Well, I mean, this could be a spoiler, but we know <laughs> Helen's coughing. We know that there's TB in the institution. We know the saint's going to die. So we're going to get to process that. But there are also some surprises. So I'm looking forward to parsing the inevitable and then also seeing what else happens. Yeah. I mean, like the thing that I love about the next couple of chapters is that a bunch of kids die. And so there's more food. The profanity of that, right, and the confrontation of the profanity of that is really moving to me. And so I'm excited to talk about that. In a Christian institution run by an incredibly wealthy benefactor. It's Uh really amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It feels so similar to so many things we're facing down right now. So Lauren and I were talking a lot about what it is that Charlotte Bronte is critiquing about Christianity. And so I decided to reach out to one of my favorite teachers in humans, Mike Motia. Mike got his PhD in the study of religion from Harvard. He's one of the smartest guys I know, and he had the honor of being my thesis advisor when I was getting my MDiv. He currently teaches religious studies at UMass Boston. 
Hi, Mike. Hi, Vanessa. I love my job that I get to talk to you as part of my job. I love that I get to talk to you. This is so fun. (laughs) Okay, so we have heard from academics and experts that part of what Charlotte Bronte is doing in these scenes at Lowood and with Mr. Brocklehurst is critiquing Calvinism. And so what is Calvinism? (laughs) What does that mean? What is she critiquing? Yeah, so there's a kind of big, broad version of Calvinism that is like a form of Christianity that there's a famous quote that says that Calvinism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And that's like one version (laughs) of Calvinism that's getting critiqued here. But the thing that people I think most associate with Calvin is this idea of predestination or in like technical theological speak, double predestination, where people are elected either to heaven or to hell. And so like some people are just like damned. And the idea is like God hates sinners and so do Calvinists. So Mike, one of the things that I'm sure everybody asks about predestination is if I am fated when I am born to either go to heaven or to hell, why try to be a good person? Yeah. It's a good question. You know, Calvin doesn't think that he's doing anything new or interesting when he talks about predestination. Like he sees himself as doing what every other Christian theologian basically had had taught, which is like some people go to heaven. And he just like said the quiet part out loud, which is like, that means some people go to hell. And (laughs) the question of like, why should you do good things for Calvin? You should do good things because they're good and because that's what God wants. And because that's therefore the best kind of life and doing them because you're going to get some reward where you go to heaven, like takes the joy out of it. Like his discussion of predestination comes in a section on prayer. And and he's like saying like, if you are sitting there and you're freaking out about whether you're going to be saved or not, you should just like calm down and know that God loves you and pray. And there's nothing you can do to take that love away. And the, the other side of it is like, And if you're damned, like there's nothing you can do about it. I really like that idea that like you should try to be good for the sake of being good and you don't really know what the fruits are. And so the other theology that we see, right, like Jane is learning these two different theologies. The other theologian in her life is Helen. And Helen is like, I'm going to go to heaven. And she does a lot of this like self-mortification, right? Like I'm a bad person, but I try. And Jane loves Helen, right? What is Helen demonstrating? Is she this like antithesis of Calvinism? I don't actually think that she's the antithesis of Calvinism. I think that she's the antithesis of the the critiquable Calvin. Like if the book is a critique of a certain form of Calvinism for which like hell is more real than heaven, I think Helen is the opposite of that. And she's the opposite of that in the sense that like she's playing on the same field, like she's working with the same principles. She has a similar way of looking at herself that sees her sins and her shortcomings as part of a larger kind of fallenness like that she she sees herself as implicated in the bad things in the world in a way that calvin taught and and thought was important that you shouldn't be saying like you know those people are the sinners and i'm the good one but she also takes up this like real love of heaven that she finds something that she can't totally describe, but that is motivating her life. And that's actually another version of Calvinism that is kicking around at the time. You know, when Charlie Bronte's father would have been in training, the kind of cool new thing to be thinking about was this other version of Calvinism that emphasized not a kind of excessive rationalism, but what one theologian called this feeling of the infinite that, It wasn't Calvin, the kind of person who would like kill a heretic if he could, but it was the Calvin who wrote the Geneva Psalter, the book of Psalms that he translates into French, because he knew that if you want to reform a society, you can't just like have a bunch of rules. You got to have like new songs for people to sing. And part of his job involves getting people to see the world as not some kind of you know sinful fallen place, but actually something that is really beautiful and lovely. That it's a theater of God's glory, not something kind of diminished and, and damned. Yeah. And so is the argument that Bronte is making, essentially there are two forms of Calvinism, one that 
one that feeds little girls and one that doesn't. And I like the one that feeds little girls. Like, I think that's definitely there. There are so many critiques of Calvinism out there at this point, right? That right around the same time, you're going to have like Charles Dickens writing a critique of Calvinism. You're going to have Harry Beecher Stowe writing another kind of takedown of this like soulless, hypocritical, rule-following Calvinist. And so in one way, like she is participating in a pylon. But <laughs> I think what we see in Helen is that the opposite of Calvinism doesn't have to be a kind of enlightenment rationalism, a kind of coolness, that what we see in Helen is this other version of Christianity that's, that's kind of still possible. And you know, yeah. Jane will be kind of enchanted by it, that she'll she'll fall in love with it, even if she doesn't totally take it up, that it's it's gonna be there in her head. And that's the critique that I think Bronte wants, that it's it's not between religion and not religion, but between different forms of, of religion. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for guiding us through this like very complicated topic. I'm very grateful. Oh, my to you. pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to On Air. We're a small show, so we do need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer is Molly Baxter. We're mixed by Erica Wong, and our music is by Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Miriam Burstein, Elsie Mitchie, and Mike Motia. Of course, we also want to thank Julia Argin, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. We will talk to you next week, chapters 9 and 10. The death of Ellen Burns. <laughs>